1: Hello, and welcome to Babbage, the Economist's weekly science and technology podcast. I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of our daily briefing app, Espresso. Coming up this week, Melinda Gates joins us to discuss why contraception could be the linchpin in bringing people out of poverty.
2: Because if a girl has access to contraceptives, she stays in school longer. She stays in secondary school longer. Her parents will invest in her education. Then she can delay the birth of a child and either go on to university, or she can delay her first marriage.
1: And how virtual reality is taking ancient Maya culture into the present. The important point of this project
3: is to digitally preserve and document the captured image that Monsley captured so many years ago in the jungle. Because, since those objects were rediscovered by him, they have weathered and decayed through time.
1: But first up, video games. As graphics get better, the cost of making games is skyrocketing. At the same time, people expect to pay more or less what they did 20 years ago. So companies are turning to alternative money making methods. The latest is something called a loot box. But many countries think this new solution needs to be regulated, as it has parallels to gambling. Our science correspondent, Tim Cross, has been following the story. Hiya, Tim.
4: Hi, Jason. Um, Loot boxes, what are they? So these are the latest way of raising money in video games. For a while now, a lot of games have worked on this new business model called uh, free-to-play, where the game itself doesn't cost any money, but you can buy things in the game that do. So they're either things that give you more power, like a sort of sharper sword to swing or a bigger gun to shoot, or they're just purely cosmetic things, like a fancy new costume for your character or whatever. And 10 years ago, that was seen as sort of new and weird and and strange. Now, a lot of the world's biggest games make their money that way. So loot boxes is is the latest twist on this. And the idea, basically, is rather than buying a specific virtual item, you buy a crate. And you open the crate, and you might get something that you want, or you might get something that you don't want. The point is, the contents are randomized. You don't know what it is you're buying beforehand.
1: Um, it's, a, it's like a lucky dip.
4: Basically, yeah. It sounds, a digital
1: lucky dip. It sounds, in fact, a lot like
4: a gamble. Well, and this is exactly the problem that is rearing its head now. So, A lot of the world's gambling regulators are looking at this and saying, so hang on, you're paying real money to buy something, the contents of which are random, but which might have value in themselves. This sounds a lot like gambling to us. Like
1: pulling a lever on a one-armed bandit.
4: Exactly. The question about whether they actually have monetary worth and whether they therefore fall under gambling laws that's between the players themselves. So some of these things are quite rare, um, and because these games are, are social, you can see that somebody has, you know, a really rare costume that almost nobody else in the game has. And you look at it and you get covetous and envious. And that's where this 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 grey market comes in. So you can, you know, you could get in contact with that person and say, "I see you've got this this very rare." Uh, costume, I want it. Um, I'm prepared to give you, say, 300 US dollars. He sends you his login details for his account. You then own his account, and you have a character with this with his costume on it. Some companies will even let you do that within the game itself. Um, but even for those where you aren't officially supposed to do that kind of thing, there's a very big grey market that that facilitates it.
1: So why why are they even bothering taking that kind of risk? Why do I create this kind of controversy? Well, the simple
4: answer is it's an easy way to make money. Making these things costs nothing. You know, once once someone's created a costume for a character, the games company can just duplicate it infinitely for zero money and any money that someone spends buying it is pure profit. There's a sort of deeper reason, I guess, as well, which is that the – one of the interesting things about the games industry is that the recommended price for a big sort of blockbuster game really hasn't changed in the last twenty years or more. So it's always been about sixty US dollars, maybe a little bit less, to buy you know a retail copy of of a really big game. The problem is, you know, 20 years ago, game development budgets were maybe in the sort of low single-digit millions. These days, they're so much more sophisticated. The graphics are much better. You need way more people to do this. Um, And the biggest games now, they have development budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And at the same time, the consequence of inflation is that $60 purchase price is now worth maybe two-thirds of what it was 20 years ago. So there's been a big push in the industry to try and find other ways of raising money. Um, And this is the latest one they've, they've hit on.
1: Um, but it sounds like it's already kind of coming unstuck. I mean, where do, you, where do you see this going from here?
4: Well, it is. And we've got this legal interest now from regulators, but players aren't massively happy with this either. So a lot of the games that, that offer loot boxes get criticized for doing so. So there's one that was in the news recently called Star Wars Battlefront 2, which is made by, or published, I should say, by Electronic Arts. Um, and there was a when it became obvious that this game was going to have loot boxes in it, there was a huge fan outcry, um, and EA sort of temporarily back down. I think for the video game industry, you know, they've spent the last 20 years trying to sort of burnish their public image and trying to get rid of this idea that they're just it's all a waste of time and they're played by sort of oddballs who live in lightless basements and so on. And mostly they've been succeeding. But I think if if video games become associated in the public mind with things like you know, slot machines, gambling, all that kind of thing, I think that's a very quick way to undo a lot of that progress.
1: And so the simple answer is, jack the price up?
4: I think raising prices is one answer and maybe the simplest. I think it's probably going to be quite hard to do because whoever goes first is going to to suffer. And obviously, they can't all sit down and decide to raise prices together because that would be... Acting like a cartel and, and illegal. Um, in many ways, it's still the neatest solution. I just think it's it's hard to see who's going to take the plunge first. I mean, there are other ways to try and get more money from your customers. So, uh, old style in app purchases without the randomness seem to me, you know, they're not going to attract this kind of of sort of moral worry, as it were. Um, there have been other innovations as well. You can buy collector's editions now of games, which are sort of fancy boxes with concept art booklets and CDs for $100 instead of 60 You can chop your game up into little bits and sell what they call you know, downloadable content. So you sell the main game for $60 and then an expansion for $20 and then another expansion for another $20. So there are ways to sort of keep the money coming in without having to raise the purchase price. But I do wonder if sooner or later something like that is inevitable. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason
1: the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has pledged an additional $375 million to family planning in developing countries. The economist Slaveya Chankova chatted to Melinda Gates to find out why she's so invested in health as a means to bringing people above the poverty line.
2: Because family planning is what allows a woman to time and space the births of her children. It allows her to get educated. It allows her to be more empowered. Her children then are better educated She can go on to get an economic opportunity and participate in the workforce. And ultimately, she and her kids are both healthier and wealthier. We know that from great studies that have been done all the way since the 1970s back in Southeast Asia. And from what you have seen on the ground, I know you've been to many developing countries as part of your work. What do you think are the biggest challenges in making contraceptives available to all women who want to use them? Well, the biggest challenge is basically funding and making sure that they reach the most remote rural health clinics. So, we've got to fund contraceptives. We have to purchase the ones that women want, which means a basket of contraceptives because we know that women choose different contraceptives at different points. In their life cycle. That's true all over the world. And if you have that basket of different types of contraceptives with different options and they're readily stocked, she will go in into the clinic and use them and procure them and put them to work. Is it, is it just money, however? Um, what about the logistics systems and, and just governments being really willing to set those up? It's both. So, the clinics exist. It's a normal primary healthcare clinic. Sometimes they're the size of a very tiny little one room uh, hut that a woman goes to. Those healthcare clinics exist, but it's both funding the supplies and then making sure that the supply chain reaches all the way out to the remote rural areas as well. The great thing, though, is when there is financing available, when there's either domestic resources available. Or there is donor money available, then the countries will start to do the work to make that supply chain work. Senegal is a perfect example. After 2012, when donor money came forward because of a big family planning summit led by the UK government and many others, our foundation and others, once money was available, Senegal went in and looked at their supply chain and realized they needed to separate the private sector part of it to actually procure and get the supplies out, but to do that in the government clinics. So they took the piece that private sector was good at, they split it away from the government, and they did them, they literally filled the government channel using a private sector supply chain. And they got cost efficiencies as well. And guess what? They got supplies out to all the remote rural areas. And that means women then have access. It's a very interesting model. Is it being replicated by any other countries? Yes. Senegal is a model for West Africa, and so many of the other West African countries are looking to Senegal to understand that, and even some countries from East Africa are visiting Senegal. The African health ministers, where they see things working, they talk to one another, and then they go study one another's model. The other great thing is we're starting to see some countries like Indonesia or Burkina Faso in Africa who are saying, we have to reach the youth, because if a girl has access to Contraceptives, she stays in school longer, she stays in secondary school longer, her parents will invest in her education. Then she can delay the birth of a child and either go on to university or she can delay her first marriage. Once she gets married, she's often expected to have a child. So if she can delay her first marriage, if she can stay in school longer, she then can also delay when she has children. And it means then that she can go on to participate in the economy. And so we're seeing, again, the CDG report points out, then she's not just working in unpaid labor. She's actually working in the labor market. And so when you see a place like Burkina Faso say, we have to go after the youth or Niger, I was just there a few years ago, they're actually setting up specific doors for the youth to come into the clinic so that there's... There's no stigma. If a, if a young person comes in, they're teaching youth about their body. When you start to have that happen, that's how you really take advantage of this, what we call demographic dividend, which is, as you know, you know, having kids who are healthy, who are well-educated, and then can participate in the economy.
1: Slaveya Chankova speaking with Melinda Gates there. Now, for hundreds of years, Maya ruins were left undiscovered, hidden in the jungles of Central America, covered in trees, ferns, and dirt. Since their discovery, archaeologists have been busy preserving them and the artifacts they contain. A hundred years ago, this was done by creating plaster casts and pictures or plates. But these have remained behind the scenes in the basements of various institutions. So Google and the British Museum have teamed up to make them available to everyone. How? By rendering 3D models of them online, 3D printing them, or even creating virtual reality versions of them. The Economist's deputy editor, Tom Standage, sat down to speak with Google's first staff archeologist, Chance Kokenauer.
3: The collaboration between the British Museum and Google Arts and Culture and the Guatemalan government for this recent project we unveiled is actually a personal one for me because I have been studying and working in the Maya world for a number of years. So the concept of this is that it basically picks up where a British explorer left off 130 years ago. And so the British Museum has a collection, it's called the Maudsley Collection, of plaster cast molds as well as glass plates that were taken in the jungles of Guatemala, Mexico, and Honduras in the 19th century. But they've been inaccessible to the public since that time. So
0: Maudsley went to that part of the world mm-hmm. to document it using the sort of virtual reality technologies of his era, which is photography and plaster casts. Exactly. And uh, and but it's all just been sitting locked away.
3: It's been sitting locked away. Only a handful of of researchers, well, Mayanists and epigraphers knew about it. But it hasn't been really opened to the public or to researchers in any easy way because of accessibility, of course, to the archives of the British Museum. It's not on display at the British Museum. The important point of this project is to digitally preserve and document the captured image that Monsally captured so many years ago in the jungle because since those objects were rediscovered by him 130 years ago, they have weathered and decayed through time. So the plaster casts and photographs have preserved that image of these glyphs and of that art. So these are now the most detailed records of what they originally looked like that we have. That's correct. So Maudsley himself said in 1899, it was the unexpected magnificence of the monuments which that day came into view that led me to devote so many years to securing copies of them, which preserved in the museums of Europe and America are likely to survive the originals. And he was talking about his first visit in 1882 to Carigua in Guatemala.
0: So if you take all of those uh, high-resolution photographs, Mm -hmm. um, because he used quite large glass plates, didn't he, Um, and his his plaster casts, and you digitize those, you can can present them using today's virtual reality technology or the web.
3: Yeah, exactly. So you can do that in different ways. You can uh, present 3D models using a 3D viewer. You can present the 3D models in VR. You can even 3D print them. The important thing to me is to be able to present it online for researchers to be able to access, to zoom in to the extreme details of these glass plates, as well as rotating and zooming the 3D models and manipulating light around them so you can more easily see the carvings. Because when Maudsley took photographs and made plaster casts of these objects, he recognized it as art and he wanted to communicate and capture the image of the Mayan civilization to share it with the world. But at the time, they didn't know, he didn't know, that this was effectively a language. And that language has only been deciphered basically in the 1980s to the most part, and it's, it's being deciphered more and more uh, until today. So what this means is one of the largest archives of Mayan art and language is now online for researchers and the general public to access. Uh, can you tell us about some of the other projects that you're working on? So the Preserving Maya Heritage Project is only the beginning. It's one of the first large-scale digital preservation projects that we've that we're doing at Google Arts and Culture. But looking forward to we're working on many more in many different parts of the world. As an archaeologist, I personally love the fact that technology is going to provide us with many more opportunities in the future. And we can already see that now from recent works that have been done from ground penetrating radar exposing new settlement areas around Stonehenge, or muon detectors detecting hidden chambers inside of the pyramids in Egypt, that the potential for how technology helps us preserve the past may be able to provide archaeologists in the future the way to explore it without digging it at all. Thank you very
1: much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks to Tom Standage for joining us today on Babbage. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank you for listening. I'm Jason Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist